0: Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you inspired it to be written, that it is life, it is the word of truth and life, that it produces change. In us when when it's implanted in our hearts it produces belief and that belief brings us to the point of salvation i thank you that because we have this hope of salvation of being with you god that we will purify ourselves just as you are pure that that your word and your holy spirit in us sanctify us and make us more and more like you so god i pray you would uh you would just teach us you would lead us with your word that you would uh convict us of any sin, Holy Spirit, that we would attack the sin in our lives, that that we would be like you, Jesus, that, Holy Spirit, you would produce fruit in us, that we would be a light to this world that produces change in our community as we share the hope of the gospel, the hope of salvation through you, because you made forgiveness available when you died and rose again. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so yeah, we've been going through the book of Acts. We've been following Paul. Last week, we saw him arrive in the city of Athens, Athens, Greece. You might have heard of it. And when he gets there, I th- I'm pretty sure he was like the only Christian on the scene. He was like the first guy to get there. And I mean, you'd probably just be like, I'm just going like, to keep to myself. But, but he was grieved when he saw that the city was full of I- idols, idolatry, these false gods. They had statues and altars and temples to, to a whole bunch of different gods. And, and he could have just kept Jesus to himself, but he knew that there was something different about Jesus, that God had proved who Jesus was, and that these people needed this message of hope. So Paul would actually spend time, he would reason with anyone who would listen to him. Right, that he would go and talk to people in the synagogue, and he would go into the marketplaces and and reason with, "Hey, let me tell you about this God who loves you, this God who who wants you to know Him." right? And he, and then at one point, he's just like, because he's talking, people are like, what is this guy saying? Who is this God that he is preaching? Let's, let's haul him up to the equivalent of like the college. We're like, all right, let's get him to talk at Harvard in front of everybody because we want to know what this new philosophy is, what this new religion is. And that's what they essentially did. So, I mean, imagine yourself if you were the only Christian in the whole city and there was all sorts of idolatry, like, and they hauled you up to, to Harvard University and like, okay, tell us about Jesus. Like, Whoa, uh, where are my friends? I know they're on a boat on their way here. Timothy, Silas, I I called for you guys. Like, can you help me out? Like, I'm all by myself. What's going on? And and so Paul is in this moment, and this is uh, at least what's recorded of the, the message that he declares to them which he'd already been proclaiming salvation through Jesus. And so Acts 17, verse 22, I think we're still on page 666 of the Bible in the blue Bibles there. It's not the demonic page of the Bible. It's just as good as the rest of it. Uh, I think we'll finally be out of it next week. But Acts 17, verse 22, up on the screen, it says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus. It's also a place called Mars Hill, where kind of all the great thinkers of their society met. And this is what he said, people of Athens... I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. And so, so you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So, last week, we talked about the idea that being religious is insufficient to save us, right? Being spiritual like these people were is is not enough. Being philosophical is not enough that we need not just a religion, we need a a person, we need a God, we need a Savior. And that's why Paul didn't just be like, it looks like you got your religion box checked, you guys are all set, I'm just going to let you be, I'm going to leave you alone. No, 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 he declared Jesus to them because it's a message of hope and a message of love and forgiveness. That, it, that, that salvation is only available through Jesus. So that's what he declared. And what's interesting and in what he observed was that they even had a temple, they had so many gods and goddesses, right? They even had a temple in case they missed the right God. They're like, well, just in case, we'll also make a temple to the unknown God. So, like, we won't make him mad in case we've been worshiping the wrong gods this whole time, right? Like, just in case, let's keep that unknown God happy. And Paul says, listen, you don't even know the person that you worship, but I want to tell you about this knowable God. And not only is God knowable, but he wants to be known, that he's gone out of his way to make himself known to you and I, that he's not just some distant, mysterious person. He's not just some statue that we made and like, all right, I made this, but now I'm going to pretend it was my God, right? Like he's a genuine God. And so in his introduction, right, Paul kind of introduces this God to them. He starts listing off some of God's credentials. He's like, let me give you God's Resume. Let me tell you who this guy is. And today, I'm literally covering like half a verse from Acts 17. That's like the new, for the new verse that I'm covering, that's all I could fit. It was originally going to be a, a really awesome, I'm, I'm sure it was, a three-point sermon, and then the first point took up seven pages, and I'm like, I guess the other points will hit next week, so that's fine. So here we go. This is what he tells us about this God that you can know. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it. This is the unknown or the knowable God that he's declaring to them. He's, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. Todo de los mundo, right? Or whatever like that, right? So, like, everything he made, it, this is the God that he's declaring to them. He's not just the God of the sun or the rain or the harvest, right? He's not just the God of, like, fertility. He's the God of everything. He's different than the everything that he made. Right, that he, This is a unique creator God, and that's the God that, who want, that wants to know us, that wants to make himself known to us. So I want to let you know that as Christians, just so you're aware, we worship Jesus here. Maybe you noticed with the songs. But we don't just worship some poor kid who was born in a manger. We don't just worship some carpenter. All right, We don't just worship someone who's a good teacher. We worship the God of the universe. That Jesus was God in the form of a man, that he came down to earth to make himself known to us, to tell us what the heart of the Father was like, so that we could know who he is and know that he cares about us, right? That is the God that we serve. We serve Jesus, who is the creator of the universe. Like I said, he was a carpenter, but he's way better than that. He doesn't just make chairs. He made everything, right? That's the God that we serve. And the Bible declares this about the Creator. It is the Trinitarian God. It is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And that Jesus was active in creation. Okay, that He's the one that made anything, everything. Uh, Colossians 1.16 says this, For by Him, it's talking about Jesus, you can go check it out on your own time. Actually, go check it out on your own time. Uh, by Him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, and check this little line out, and for him, that we were created for Jesus, that we were created to, to know him, to have a relationship with him and to live for his glory and not for ourselves. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Jesus, the creator God of the universe, is not only the one that made everything, but he's the one that keeps it going, right? He's the one that keeps it all together. He is the glue that keeps our universe running, right? He sustains all things. It says this about Jesus in John chapter 1. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. I believe it's about verse 16 or 17 in this chapter that John finally tells us who this word is, capital W word. He says this word is Jesus, all right? And what did Jesus do from the beginning? He said he was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So if you can think of something that's made, Jesus made it, okay? So he was in the beginning, he was with God and he was God. Now he takes credit for everything that you see, the universe that you enjoy is made by him. And this is the God that Paul proclaims to these people. And this is the God that we proclaim here, that he is the creator God. Now, I realize that maybe you're, you're like, I don't know if I believe that there's a creator. Like, I don't think, or if, if there is a God, I'm not even sure that it happened like creation. All right? I, I, don't, I don't necessarily think that, you know, God created the world the way he said he did. Or maybe I don't think he built it all in the time span, the time frame that he claims he built it in. Like, I don't know. I'm not sure I believe that yet. And that, I think, might be an okay place to start, all right, that you need to encounter Jesus as a Savior, right, that, that we have a need for forgiveness, that that might be the place right where you begin is just in your recognition of your need for Jesus. But eventually, as we get to know God, we should grow to trust him. As we, as we learn more about God, we should... Right? Not only trust Him with our salvation, but believe Him when He tells us about our origin, about the past, right? or about what our greatest needs are, or about why we're here. Right? So, so you don't have to start with just the book of Genesis and assume like, okay, here we go. Right? Like you might not even know, why, why did I randomly pick this book to be the book that I think is true? Right? Which I can tell you, there are a lot of reasons why the Bible is true. I'd love to have that conversation with you sometime. But... But we believe, the main reason we believe in creation is because Jesus believed and taught creation. Okay? That's what, that's what Jesus taught. Right? And, and we figure that he, having uh, been there at the time, the beginning, having been the one who made it, that he's a trustworthy eyewitness to tell us what it was like. Right? That, well, okay, Jesus like, whatever you say goes, I'm going to believe you. All right? And, and that the account that he gives regarding creation, he doesn't just say this is what it was like, he actually quotes a source that we'd already had at the time of Jesus. He quotes from the book of Genesis. He says, oh, by the way, this is exactly how it happened, just like God had told Moses, right? This is how it happened, right? He he gives credit to that. He quotes from a book that was written hundreds of years before he was born, which, just in case that confuses you, yes, God lives eternally, right? Jesus existed forever, but then he was also born onto this earth, so he did have a lifespan here, but he is an eternal being. Okay, so, so, so I've got a, a few passages that Jesus talks about, that Jesus mentions where he, he quotes from Genesis, or he shares from Genesis. He points to what Moses wrote down and saying, this is what happened. So he validates it, okay? So in, in Matthew 19, verses 3 through 4, all right, it says, and the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking him. Now, Pharisees were the religious dudes at the time. They were like the elite, the leaders. They were powerful they weren't happy with Jesus because they were shaking up what their power was in, right? They, they, they were shaking up the, the religious views at the time. And so they try to ask him a trick question. They want to stump him. And this is what they asked him. And they said, uh, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And just because I don't finish this verse, I'll let you know the answer is no. All right? In case, in case you walk away. Oh, wow. Cool. Uh, no, don't do that. Um, you can't do it for any cause. But notice... so they ask him a question regarding morality. Jesus could have just said, well, what's culture say today? Right, what do you guys think? I mean, you could just divorce anyone, right? Or what do our, uh, the, the authorities say today? I mean, Herod, the, the guy who was in charge, the governor over that area, he, he married his brother's wife. Like, I mean, like, I guess you could just do whatever you want with this. But Jesus didn't answer this moral question by relating to the culture. Jesus answered this moral question by quoting from a very old book, which is kind of interesting. Okay? So that's just like a little side note bonus right there. But what he says here is that, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? I think it's interesting that he's talking to these religious leaders who study the Old Testament all the time. Like, they have to, like, memorize the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible and all this stuff. And he's like, I don't know, did, did you guys ever read this one? Like, I mean, did you ever read that? Like, the first chapter of the book that is your favorite book? Like, you know that book? This is where I'm getting my moral basis from. All right, this is what's true. And he, he quotes from that book, right? And, and what Jesus points out here is he's quoting as though this actually happened. He's referencing this as though this was a historical event, that he believed this event actually occurred. He quoted from Genesis as though it was true. He also used this passage from Genesis as a basis for doctrine, as a basis to determine truth or how we should live, right? That that he answers this question of morality utilizing a text that was hundreds of years old at his time. And he also asks the, the phrase of like, have you not read it? Like, he's like, hey, let me recommend a book for you. Like, right, this is better than Oprah's favorite book list or whatever. Like, this is Jesus' favorite books, right? Let me tell you, here's a good book to read when you have questions like the one you have. But notice what he said in this statement. He says, created them from the beginning, made them male and female. He tells us that he believes that God created male and female from the beginning. That, he, that there was a creation event, that there was even a beginning, Right? And he validates the book of Genesis in doing so. Okay? He says, this is how it happened. Right? If you want to hear more about creation, let me, let me tell you, recommend where you should go. Or how about Mark 13, verse 19. And Jesus is talking here, and instead of talking about the past, he's talking about the future. He's prophesying an event which has not yet happened, just so you're aware. He's talking about uh, the abomination of desolation, which is referred to in the book of Daniel, one of the prophetic books of the Old Testament. And, and this is what he says, For in those days, future tense, right? There will be such tribulation, a really hard time, a difficult life, right, as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. So what's interesting is that in his prediction of the future, he says that this event where life is going to be really hard apparently, uh, hasn't happened yet, in this event in the future, he places that on the same exact timeline that had creation at the beginning. And then even saying uh, that has not happened until now, he talks about the present, where he was at that moment in, in the realm of history, on the stage of history. He relates his time in history on the same exact timeline that had the beginning back in Genesis, right? That he says, listen, the reality that we're in now had that beginning, that there was this creation. So he places reality within that same timeline. Or how about this? Here's in John chapter 5. He's once again talking to religious leaders. They're all upset with him. And, And this is what he says because they were huge fans of Moses. Moses wrote the early books of the Bible, or at least the first five. He says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So an interesting thing is he, first of all, he claims that The Old Testament, parts of it were written by Moses, okay? So he claims authorship. There's multiple reasons in the Bible that we believe that the Old Testament, parts of the Old Testament were written by Moses. But he also makes this claim saying that Moses wrote about me. Not me, Brian, but Jesus, the me, Jesus, okay? Right? That Moses wrote about him, which is an interesting claim. Wait a minute, you're telling us Jesus that this guy hundreds of years ago wrote about you? Yes. Yes, he did. And in fact, this is not the only place that Jesus makes this claim. I believe it's in Luke 24, after he rose from the dead, he said, listen, all the Psalms and the prophets were also about him. Or in a conversation with the religious elite, he says, listen, you place your hope in this book thinking that in it you have life. But he says, this book points to me. These words are about me, right? That it's not about us just like knowing a text or knowing what these facts say. It's about us knowing the person that they point to that he is the knowable God that wants to be known by us. But what I think is interesting here is that he says, if you had believed Moses' writings, then they would have believed Jesus' words. Now, he was speaking to Jewish people at the time who did claim to believe Moses' writings, right? So he's saying, listen, like, if you believe this, it should be obvious that I'm the Messiah. Because Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies specific to his first coming, and by the way, there are other prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled about his second coming, okay? But, but he's saying, l- listen, like, if you believe that, it should be obvious who the Messiah is. It should be really apparent. But I think this is interesting. He says, if you don't believe what Moses wrote, he says that you'll have a really hard time believing what Jesus says. And now, I want to point out again, he was talking to a Jewish audience. These were people that already claimed to believe what Moses wrote. Now, most people don't come to Jesus by reading the book of Genesis. Most people come to Jesus first and then begin to believe why the Bible is true, okay? Uh, And the people that Paul is speaking to in Athens are ones where he doesn't start there. He tells them about Jesus, this guy who came and died and rose again, right? To make salvation available to them, right? We start by our encounter with Jesus. And then oftentimes we end up believing the Old Testament. But I do want to point out that Jesus says that if we don't believe what Moses wrote, we'll have some really hard times believing what Jesus said. That there will be some, like, logic puzzles that we get stuck in and we wrestle with. All right? That we'll, we'll have a really hard time believing him. And I want to point out that if we are willing to, to believe in Jesus for our salvation, if we're willing to trust him with our lives and with our eternity, then at some point we should also believe what he says about the past. Right? At some point, like, I mean, I'm like, I'm trusting you with my future, like, and I'm, I don't know if Jesus got that right, though. Right? Like, at some point, like, we've got to figure out, we got to reconcile what's going on and understand, okay, what did Jesus say? Now, now, you might think, like, yeah, but why believe Jesus in the first place? Like, why are we giving so much credibility to this one guy? Right? Why did we suddenly decide he's the authority about what is true? All right? And like I said, we Christians, we believe Jesus is true for multiple reasons. Okay? Uh, One of them is all the prophecies that he fulfilled that would be just ridiculously mathematically improbable for him to have not fulfilled if he wasn't the Messiah. Like, it just doesn't work out. Right? So there's a lot that already pointed to him where God wrote the end from the beginning, where God declared it before it happened, and then it happened. So, like, that kind of is pretty evident. But the other reason that we believe Jesus is because he's the guy that said he was God, died, and then came back to life. And it's like, I want to know what that guy thinks. Right? Like, I've never done that trick before. That guy seems to, he's got his life together. Like, wow. Like, this guy, I want to hear what he has to say. Right? So, that's why we Christians, we start with Jesus. Right? That we're like, hey, if Jesus says this, he calls the shots. Right? And we've, we've come to trust in him. All right? That we come to, to trust him in different ways. But what's cool is that you experiencing this creator God who wants to be known by you is not solely dependent On your knowledge of the scriptures, that you knowing that God exists does not only depend on whether or not you believe what the Bible says about it. That God actually says that He should be apparent within creation itself. Okay, that like the moment you like kind of like step into the universe and you're like, wow, this is a pretty cool place. He was saying that just the fact that you're there, it should be obvious that there's a Creator. Here, I'll, I'll read the passage to you. It's in Romans chapter one. Uh, verses 18 to 20. It says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. It's talking about people who reject what God has to say. It says, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived. How long has this been obvious? How long has this been clearly perceived? Since when? The creation of the world. So since God made everything, he's left evidence that points to his existence. And where is that evidence? It says, in the things that have been made. It says, so these people who reject God are, it says, without excuse, right? That God has left sufficient information, sufficient evidence to point to his existence. Now it says, right, some of his attributes, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power. Right? So, like, you walk into the universe, you're like, wow, this place is full of energy, full of matter, and there's a lot of it. Something caused this, someone caused this, and whoever it was was really powerful. Right? Like, right? That's what we would see, right? Some people claim that the universe started from nothing, but energy and matter don't come out of nothing. Reactions don't happen without a cause. Right? So, that's what, it should be obvious we walk into this universe and that's what we see. Or it says that his divine nature is made apparent by creation. Right? The fact that, once again, we walk into the universe, you're like, wow, this is a lot of stuff. I don't think I could do this. I, I would have gotten tired taking a nap on the couch. Like, I don't think I could make this whole universe. I'm not able to do this. So the God who made it must be different than me in some ways. He must not be exactly like me. He must not be a subset of the universe that he created. Right? He must be outside of this universe. So, so creation points to the fact that God exists, that there is a creator and it tells us some things about him, okay? And what's cool is it says that these things should be evident within what has been made, all right? So whether we're looking out into space and we see galaxies and nebula and comets and, right, asteroids, whatever we see, that there should be evidence to God, right? And not just in the sense of like, wow, that's pretty, God must have made it. No, but in the sense of when I study this, it should be advanced. It should be specific. There should be order to it to the point that there's a creator God. And actually, that's what it says in Psalm 19.1. It says that the heavens declare the glory of God. They point to who he is. Or like what Paul's saying here is that, right, that in the things that have been made, that if we look maybe not outward in space, but maybe even inward, when we look at our own earth or when we look at life, right, single cells or different things, that it should be obvious that there was a creator, that there was someone that organized this. And, and he says in Paul's day, when he wrote this letter to the church in Rome, he said, listen, the people that refuse this, who suppress the truth, he said, they, they don't have an excuse. And what's crazy is that for you and I, we actually have even less excuse than they did now. Because through observable science, we've seen a whole lot more, right? We've seen way more evidence We've seen the design and structure and the fine-tuning of the universe, right? We've seen the, the fact that like, I mean, in terms of back when Charles Darwin first made his theory, he, was, he thought cells, a single cell, he thought it was just like a little pouch of jelly. He's like, yeah, that could happen, like life could arise out of rocks with rain falling on them for millions of years, right? Like it didn't look that advanced, right? And like actually the whole idea of a simple cell is an oxymoron. Cells are not simple. They're specifically complex. There's interdependencies within them. They're more advanced than anything that mankind has ever made. Right, they're more complicated than a whole city with all of the resources and trucks and networks and everything that we've ever made. And what's even cooler than that is that the cell can duplicate itself in a matter of hours. Like, Imagine like if we could build something that advanced and then make it produce after itself over and over and over again. Like, I, we don't have self-replicating cities yet. I mean, that, that'd be pretty cool. But this is the idea, is that, that the evidence should be apparent that there is design, that there is a designer. Okay, so, so I've been talking about creation, and obviously there's the, the opposite thought process there is that, well, what about evolution, Brian? So what about this? And I will let you know that uh, not just as a, a pastor, but even when I was a math teacher for 10 years, I did not and do not believe in evolution. Now let me clarify what I mean by that, because there's a lot of different uh, definitions of the word. Okay, because there's solar evolution and chemical evolution, and you know origin of life and bi- abiogenesis, and all of this. But what what I don't believe in is macro evolution. All right, that you could have a dog produce a cat. All right, or that you could have like a bacteria make something that's not bacteria. All right that that a a bird would hatch hatch from a lizard 's egg like that 's what that 's what we don 't believe in that 's what the bible doesn 't account for okay that doesn 't make that a possibility, but what we do see and do believe in is microevolution we believe in variation we do believe in change over time in populations we do believe in adaptation, right but we just believe that that 's a designed variation within a species okay that, that that makes sense that God created species that were adaptable, so depending on you know, droughts and famines and environments changing that that species would be able to progress. And we also believe that traits within a species could become predominant based on environmental changes. All right, so like that's things that most everyone believes in and agrees on. Now what that, we would argue is that does not point, you cannot extrapolate that data on the small scale and put that eons back and assume that that happens on a macro scale. But let's find out, because we do observe that change. We do observe that variation. Let's find out how God described the life that he made, how God described the, the organisms and the biology of the universe that he made. Okay, so, so in Genesis chapter 1, verse 11, have you, read, have you read this yet? Chapter 1 of Genesis, this is good. Have you read this, Jesus would say? Genesis 1, 11, he says, and God said, literally, because that's how he made things, which actually I'll pause there, just sorry guys, I'm super excited about this. God created by speaking. God used words to create. And it's interesting that in terms of the, in computer software and the worlds that we create and the software we make, we, we make it with words. We make universes with words. We program it with a language. And I just find that intriguing that God also created with his words. So God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, In which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, or each after its own kind on the earth, and it was so. So God said, Hey, I'm going to make plants, and there's going to be seeds in those plants. And those seeds will produce plants like the parent plant. All right, or I'm going to make trees, and when you have an apple tree, right, in the apple, within the fruit will be the seed. And if you take that seed and plant it, it will produce something like its parents after its kind. Okay, so that's the way he made plants, okay? Right, so that's what we would expect to see based on the universe that we're in. In Genesis one twenty four, he makes animals. It says, and God said, once again, speaking, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to or after their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. So he's saying animals will produce after themselves. Children, animals will look like the same species of their parents in some ways, with variation, right? So they'll produce after their kinds. And this is what we observe today. There is no observable evidence of macroevolution. We only ever see uh, oak trees coming from oak seeds, acorns, right? I think I got that right. right. We don't see an oak come from an ivy. We don't see that bird hatch from a lizard's egg. Right? There's, that's never been observed. We only see life produce life after its kind. That it makes the same sort of thing that it already was. And yet, the, Stephen Jay Gould, the guy who came up with punctuated equilibrium, he claims that you will see something like the, the, the lucky monster, the idea of you will see a bird hatch from a reptile egg at some point. Because the fossil record, when he looked at it, he said there's not enough, there needs to be transitional forms and they're not here we see a huge amount of stasis where life forms are consistently the same for for years and years and years and then there are other life forms but we don't see it's just it's it's a jolt it's a sudden change so he said well i guess that you know because we don't see the change happening slowly it must happen really quick and that's what he claims but that's not what we've ever observed we've never seen that happen so what we do observe is that there's things produced after their kind And that there is some variation. And I'll take a moment to explain what kind means. Kind does not necessarily coincide with the word species. Okay, it could be that specific in some cases. But kind, according to what God's saying, is if they can breed, they're probably of the same kind. Okay, like in general, like they'll make something after their kind. So if you could mate them and they have a baby, it'll be of the same kind. So that's in general. However, uh, this other guy... That I quote here is, he says that if two animals can produce a hybrid, then they are considered to be the same kind. However, the the inability to produce offspring does not necessarily rule out that the animals are of the same kind, since this may result as a result of different mutations or things after the fall, right? After the world is no longer the perfect place that it was once made. Okay, so so for instance, mules, uh, you can get from breeding a horse and a donkey, So, those all three must be in the same kind category that God would name them, even though science now categorizes them in a a finer detail, calling them species. Okay? So, So, this is what he says is that, right, if they can breed, then they should be of the same kind. Right? And that there is some degree of variation, there is some degree of change, but they're all, it's designed variation, is what we would see. And also, like he said there in terms of the fall, I would point out that the Bible doesn't say that the world is the perfect place that it was made as. It doesn't say that we as humans are exactly how God wanted us when he first made us. All right, the Bible would describe our current world situation as being something that was made perfect and is now fallen, now broken because of our sin, right? It's like you had a really good car, but then you didn't change the oil for 100,000 miles. Like, things getting clunky, right? Like, you got some problems. Right? And that's what we observe. We observe brokenness within our world. We observe sickness and death and cancer and distortion and mutation within ourselves, right? So that, that's what the Bible would describe it, whereas evolution describes it from the ground up of, well, you know, if you rain on the minerals in the rocks long enough that eventually they'll get together and produce a code in life. And not only the code, but they'll also produce the mechanism that can read the code and translate that into proteins that make the life. Like, there's a lot of parts. Of, and then they, that's why they see you know, the same weaknesses, the same sicknesses, the same deficiencies. And they assume it was a bottom up, but in fact, it was a top down that's now broken. Okay. So, so how about, how about Darwin's finches, right? You guys probably have heard the story, Charles Darwin. I think he sailed out on the SS Beagle, I believe was the name of the boat. And uh, he was actually a theologian. That's what he he trained in. Uh, He went to seminary and um, he ends up going out to the, the islands of Galapagos and uh, he ends up observing a lot of evidence, okay, a lot of different species and animals that are adapted to their environment. But one of the classic examples is the finches that he observed, where he assumed, and I think he was right, that there was an ancestor species of finch. I don't think it was a lizard, right? but it was an ancestor species of finch that was probably from the mainland of South America, and they, they got out to these islands in the Galapagos and and the populations being separate, that's one of the ways that speciation happens, according to biology, right, where you can actually have genetically identical species, but the fact that now there's a mountain or a lake or an ocean in between them, they call them two separate species, even though they're genetically identical at that time, okay? Uh, so, so he said, well, these species must have adapted to their environments. certain features were more predominant depending on what types of food sources there were, and he saw that there was variation within the species. That some were better at, you know, cracking nuts and foods like that, and others were better at eating the fruits and the things that they found. And so depending on the island and the environment, this species was adapted. The most fit ones would be the ones that became most predominant on that island. And so what he observed was actually microevolution, and he ended up, like I said, extrapolating that and saying, well, what what if these did all come from a lizard once? What if all living things did come from the same ancestor? Right, So he extrapolated, and as a mathematician, I'll let you know if you don't have a lot of data points, extrapolation is a, there's a lot of assumptions that go on there. But what's interesting is that these finches, once claimed to be separate species, are actually the same. And that's not like Brian's like, here, I'm going to give you my religious propaganda thing. Uh, an article in March of 2014, so that's last year, uh, a study came out, I believe it was in the journal Nature, that came out and found that these separate species can actually all interbreed that all of Darwin's finches that were the the classic example of evolution, they actually all can interbreed with one another. They're not actually separate species. They actually even predict that in the next, I think, 30 to 50 years, because of populations kind of intermingling, that they're going to meld back into the same species again. So that's kind of an interesting thing. So the fact that they can breed would suggest that God would categorize all of those as the same kind. All right, I'm fine if we want to call them separate species, by the way, if we want to have more minute details, but but they're all the same kind as God would describe it. Another interesting thing is that the variation in their beaks in a report that came out February, a study that came out February of this year, 2015, they found out that that variation had nothing to do with genetic mutation. It had nothing to do with, like, a new species being formed as a result of some genes mutating and changing. They actually found out, and I'll read this to you, a new paper in the journal Nature has identified a gene, ALX1, involved in helping cause the different beak shapes. One variant of ALX1 gene seems to be associated with the pointed beaks, and the other variant is involved with blunted beaks. So the variation we see in their beaks is actually pre-programmed variation within their genetic code. Right? That, that's all just part of how they were designed as a species originally. And what's interesting is, I would point out, is that we don't consider humans a different species if they have bigger noses or smaller noses, right? Like, there's variation within us, and we're still all one species, which, by the way, genetically has been shown that we're all one species, and the Bible also agrees with which I'll point out in a future sermon in a couple weeks. So, so the variation within their, their population was by design. Designed variation. The benefit of that is that you have a species that's more rugged, so when there are droughts, when there are environmental changes, you'll have a species that can last and adapt to that environment. And I want to point out that design variation is actually something that we can do today. That's something that in simplest games is something that happens. Let me show you an example of Minecraft here. And yes, I think this is the third time I've ever used this video game as an example in my sermon. But here we have programmed variation. Okay, all four of these pictures, you might say, wow, look how different those are. We've got different like ecosystems, we've got different variations, we've got tunnels, and, and lakes, and rivers, and jungles, and mountains, and valleys. There's a lot of variation there. But it's actually the same code that generated all four of these locations. That every time you start a new game in Minecraft, it actually generates a whole new world. All right? And it's actually not randomly generated. All right? First of all, random is something that doesn't exist within our universe, which is kind of weird, it's something that they've found. Uh, and computers can't generate random numbers anyway. They can only do pseudo-random numbers. But this isn't even pseudo-randomly generated. This is algorithmically generated. I'm sorry for all the crazy words. But it's following a procedure according to, make, to making its design. If it was pseudo-random, then these, these worlds would look more like the static you would have had on your old TV set when the wire was unplugged. Right? They would have just been chaotic pieces of blocks and granite and water and sand and dirt all over the place. And it would have been like, almost like a sponge or something like that with just materials everywhere with no order to them. But there is actually, even though these images look so different, there's, there's designed similarity within that variation. Right? That the way that they generate it algorithmically according to a procedure or a process, right, they'll create a smooth surface. right, Mathematically laid out. And then within that surface, they'll fill it with materials and then add random pockets of blocks or different materials and minerals, right? They'll build tunnels within it. They'll have a river system or oceans form. They'll have different biomes, the ecosystems that they've got generated in different areas. They'll have little villages form and they'll actually even have like animals populate those regions and villagers as well, right? But it's all variation by design, all right? It's all some, a single code that can produce all of those different looking things that vary much, but there's similarity. There is some degree of uniformity. There's some degree of... There's a limit to the variation. And that's the same thing that we see with finches. There's a limit to their variation, right? They're, they're not suddenly, like, going to have, like, crazy big beaks. That's not... There's a limit to the variation. I mean, even in terms of some... An animal that we intentionally... Uh, what's, the, what's, the, what's the other one from... man? Forgot What's the difference between natural selection and artificial selection? There we go. There we go. But, right, imagine racehorses, right? You would make a lot of money if you could artificially select to breed racehorses that were, like, super fast. But no matter how well you do that, you're never going to get a horse that can run the speed of light. You're you're never going to get a warp speed racehorse, no matter how well you can breed it. There's a limit to that variation, right? You might be able to optimize it a bit, but there's a limit to that variation. You can't just suddenly make it just like do these impossible things. There's there's variation by design. So guys, there's so much that I wish I could cover today. I wanted to give you like some more science examples and stuff, but I did give you that on the bonus content on the backs of the bulletins. There's so many different videos and articles that I've given you that I, I really encourage you to seek out because don't just assume that maybe what you were taught in high school is all that there is. Because even those theories have already been like many of them have been thrown out and changed and adapted, right? Like, because, like, new science is coming out. It's great. I love being able to discover things about our world. And if you have questions, don't be afraid of asking, right? Don't be like, oh, there's this one question I'm thinking, but that would offend Brian. That's probably blasphemous or sacrilegious or God will just strike me dead right then if I ask. No, 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 like, ask those questions because I think it's good to be able to get those answers or to find out, well, okay, what does the Bible say about this? Or what would you, how would you explain this sort of feature that we've observed? Right. Ask those questions. Feel free to email me or talk to me at the end of the gathering. So please, please do that. Let's have the um, the worship team come up, and I want to put one more verse up on the screen from Acts chapter fourteen. So this is another time Paul was preaching in another city, and he and his buddy ended up doing some miracles, and the people in the city thought they were gods, so they were trying to worship him and him and Paul. Uh, and so this is what Paul says to them. He says, "Men, why are you doing these things?" We are also men with a nature like yours, right? Of of like nature with you. And we bring good news. That you should turn from these vain things. So in their case, worshiping them as false gods. But but the good news of the Bible is that we should turn from the vain things that we do. All right? We should turn from the sins that we do. We should turn and, and trust God rather than keep living our lives as though, you know, we're just here and there's no reason that we're here. Right? Turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So guys, when we turn from sin, we don't turn to a a new religion. We don't turn to a new moral code. We don't turn to a book. We don't turn to some God that we made up. We turn to the living God, a knowable entity, a person that we can experience and know. And we turn to him, and he is the one that created the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. So he's the one that is the knowable God who wants to be known by us. Let's pray before we go into these last couple of songs. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that Lord in the past you revealed yourself through the prophets in your word and, and that more recently you've made yourself known through your son who pointed to you, who showed us the heart of a father that you love us, God, even when we've betrayed you, when we've rebelled against you. I thank you, Jesus, that you were willing to pursue and die for us while we were, as your word describes, as we were your enemies. But you desire to make us friends. I thank you, God, that you want to be found by us, that your word says that if we seek you, we will find you. And I pray that you would make yourself real to us as we continue to pursue you and pursue truth as we read your word and as we seek you through worship. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.